0: So the opening quote um, I'd like to share and and invite us to feel into is uh, a quote that I've been reflecting on and um, being inspired by and enjoying for the last three years or so. Um, The person who said it uh, passed away in November about three years ago. And he is known as um, a Canadian poet, a uh, very ardent Zen practitioner, uh, smash hit rock star, says Leonard Cohen. Not everybody knows his ardency in Zen practice, but he was actually quite ardent in his spiritual path. Um, and I'm going to say it in his language, which is not necessarily language that you'll hear in every Dharma hall, okay? <laughs> I don't want to change it. He said this world is full of conflicts and full of things that cannot be reconciled. But there are moments when we can transcend the dualistic system and reconcile and embrace the whole mess. And that's what I mean by hallelujah which if you know his work was a um, very popular song from, if I remember correctly, 1984. He says that regardless of what the impossibility of the situation is, there is a moment when you open your mouth and you throw open your arms and you embrace the thing and you just say, Hallelujah, blessed is the name. The only moment you can live here comfortably in these absolutely irreconcilable conflicts is in this moment when you embrace it all and you say, Look, I don't understand a fucking thing. Hallelujah. That's the only moment that we lived here fully as human beings. So we are absolutely living in difficult times. And what I try to remind myself um, often and and with a lot of um, spaciousness and heart is that we've always been living in difficult times. Uh, Reflecting back, like, you know, say the 1950s where we didn't know uh, whether the nuclear winter was going to take out the planet, or when? Well, it was not so long ago, in many of our lifetimes. Uh, or um, you know, now we have the issue of of not knowing how much longer this planet is going to survive. That's a big one. Uh, but I think back several centuries ago, in the Black Death, and was everybody on the planet going to die? You know, they didn't know. It's like wow, it's not easy not easy. But I see um, in these times, and I travel around the world teaching, and so I see it in, in different countries and different cultures, and you know there's there's a level of concern um, and um, emotion and also sometimes reactivity around the difficulties of our time that is heightened. And so I think that that provides us with both the possibility of of a heightened awareness for an appropriate response you know to really raise the bar on what we're capable of because we are you know and also it raises the bar on the possibility of increasing polarization and dividedness and reactivity and consumption and all that so it's like oh these are intense times I'm not saying anything that we don't know. But when I think about, um, you know, one of the, the foundations of this practice is naming what's true, right? We're naming it over and over again. We're sitting in meditation, in, out, thinking, planning, remembering. Oh, it's also true there's difficulty. It's also true that there's beauty, and resiliency, and capacity, and potential. That's why I'm here. Why are you here? Really? So the Buddha lived in difficult times, if if you're not familiar with the Buddha's life story. You know, in the time of the Buddha, um, there was also economic disparity. There was also gender inequality. The caste system in India was quite oppressive there were also wars over resources there's a a famous teaching of the buddha where he tried to mediate um, a conflict between two clans over water rights who was going to get the resource and um, the war happened anyway it's like oh wow this has been going on for a long time and somehow all these generations we've made it through you know, I don't think we made it through 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 just greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, we're making it through through ardency and care and courage, and um, strength and skills. So here we are, all is well. So I feel like they're they're both true, and that sometimes we're resting in one side, and sometimes in the other, and sometimes there's enough space that opens up that we're resting in wholeness. Yeah, it's hard, personally interpersonally, systemically. And yeah, it's okay, there's enough, there's capacity, there's potential, there's growth, there's awakening potential. The whole thing, right? No part left out. But here's something I think about with the Buddhist story. Maybe some of you that know the Buddhist story think about this too. Which is after Siddhartha got enlightened, he took a series of weeks, actually, um, quite some number of weeks, to reflect on the transformation that had happened through him and then also to reflect on the possibilities for service. And he actually came to a point where he started to question, how can I share what I've understood? You know, the world is so reactive and it's so uptight, and who is going to understand this? And so sometimes I ask myself, what if he hadn't moved beyond that point? I mean, certainly just to make it all about me, my life would be completely different. (laughs) And of course, it isn't all about me. It's the hundreds of millions of people's lives and spiritual influences that would be different because one person felt like, well, there isn't enough available capacity here for me to even try and bother uh, that's what happens when we fall in the pit of despair. It's like, oh, why bother? But again and again in Siddhartha's story, he moved into to doubt and, um, you know, I don't know if he moved into despair, but just this kind of, mm, not quite sure I can engage, not quite sure I can move forward, and again and again moved through it. Oh, that's our journey I mean, think about how many times you've gone through that process just since you got here. You know, could you could you put up two hands with fingers and you know actually pull it off? You know, maybe not. So many times. And so, as the story goes, um, when the Siddhartha, who was in the process of manifesting in the early stages of being a Buddha, uh, was asking, "Is there you know a possibility? Is there a point?" he went through an archetypal process where he received information and the information that he received was yes there are those with little dust in their eyes, there are those who are clear enough the potential's there so try but I love the fact that his early tries to transmit to share his awakening were failures and he didn't give up. So like, he tried um, one of the, the stories that's quite well known. Uh, he encountered somebody on the road and he wanted to be able to share his awakening. And the person was asking him questions. And, and uh, the Buddha was asking, answering them in negation. You know, Are you human? Are you God? Are you Deva? Are you this? Are you that? No, no, no. And finally the fellow traveler said, well, well who are you? Uh, That's a very potent question to ask on this path. Uh, Who am I? Who are you? Really? And the Buddha said, I am awake. As the story goes, the next thing that happened was the fellow traveler looked at him kind of imagine him shaking his head and basically going peace be with you friend and hurrying on his way okay this guy's a little off I am awake <laughs> okay. so then um, the, the kind of newly um, birthing Buddha-ness through this man uh, you know he reflected more and, and came up with the, the formula of the Four Noble Truths and tried that out on some of his friends to see if it landed, and it did, and so that became a foundational teaching. So I'm not going to teach on the Four Noble Truths tonight, but just in case you aren't so familiar, I'll share them with you in my own words, which are quite different than the way you'll read them in the text, but the essence is there. These foundational teachings, make your own words. Make it so you can remember. Say it to yourself often. So First Noble Truth... It isn't easy being a human being living a life. Not easy. Nothing's wrong. No problem. Just how it is. So fortunately it doesn't end there. Second noble truth. The basic cause of our dis-ease, or our disease, uh, is struggle. It's often talked about as craving, but what is craving? Struggle. So we can be on the lookout. Oh, struggle, oh, there's dis-ease. Third noble truth, peace is possible. Full stop, okay? Same world, same body. I mean, it it doesn't mean that we're just uh, rolling over in the face of injustice. It means that there's an inner wellspring of refuge and capacity that we can access and bring to the difficulties of our world. Which is why we take the time in deep retreat like this to refill our reservoir for when we're exhausted, in despair, burned out. I mean, if you came here and those things aren't present, rejoice. Because that's not true for everybody right now. Everything in its season. Sometimes we're quivering with the pain of our lives in the world and other times we're like, yeah, life is great. I know the world is hurting, and right now, my direct full experience is it's wonderful. We need that too. One of many lines I love from um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who certainly knows individual and systemic suffering. Uh, and uh, he used to smile, and he would point to his mouth and say, No toothache. I didn't understand how profound that was until I had my first tooth blow up on me three years ago. (laughs) You know how this morning I was saying don't just notice the the presence of things notice when they pass. Especially with the difficulties notice they're not forever from the inside. It's really important. It's one of the ways we develop that trust in how things unfold. It's like okay now it's hard and that's a different season. A new season comes. And it's a law of nature impermanence. permanence. So, um, you know, I mean, we cannot believe it. We can fight with it at times. But it does take care of itself. You know, there's a certain trustworthiness. No toothache. So, um, I wanted to talk about three different um, aspects tonight of, um, you know, there, there are three aspects of this journey and, and three places that we can develop a relationship that bring the potential for a lot of resiliency and well-being to face the reality of the first noble truth, that it isn't always easy. And those three areas are developing a, a deeper, mindful, and compassionate relationship with the body. Um, and the second is um, this journey of the heart um, and developing that relationship and uh, the heart practices. Um, And then the third is developing a relationship with a deeper sense of refuge. I'm going to point to it in one particular way, but I really want to invite in any way that you find refuge being a human being living a life, it counts. And it's really, really important. So the one that I'm going to point to just briefly is um, the refuge of connecting with that aspect of mind um, in its essence, which is really different than the aspects of mind in its content. So sometimes this is talked about as awareness, but I'm finding that the word awareness is being used to point to so many things these days that it gets a little confusing as a word. So I'll just leave it there. So body, let's start with the body. You know, and to really acknowledge for me coming into practice, so I came in 17 years old, and um, one of several conditions that invited me into this practice really young. So, but this was before mindfulness was mainstream, this was before teenagers meditated. Some years later, I was on the the initial teaching team starting the teen retreats on the West Coast here, and now lots of teenagers meditate. But back then, I would walk into the meditation hall, and everybody would be two to three times my age. So one of my early retreats I sat here, um, the first kind of long retreat here, was in uh, the late 90s. And I actually was worried I was going to get kicked out for being too young. Because, like, the next oldest person was in their late 20s, and the next oldest person after that was, like, 50. So I was afraid that they were going to actually figure out how old I was and kick me out, you know. So why was I coming into the practice if it wasn't a thing? Um, One of um, several really important reasons was the body piece. So I had a terrible car accident when I was 17, And um, so my experience from that point on for about six years was that my body appeared from the outside to look young, um, healthy, strong. And my experience from the inside was incredible um, discomfort to pain, to fragility, braced, um, you know, kind of um, brittle, was my experience of body when I could even be in the body, which was not often because it was so exhausting to be in the body, right? So all the conditioning I had to pop out into the mind and into dissociation anyway just got more, right, due to conditions. And so I needed some very strong invitations to come back home, and I needed a lot of support And I found that some of these practices and some of the communities that I was a part of in meditation provided that and I'm really grateful. I'm naming this because I know I'm not the only one and I'm naming it out of respect for those of you right now who are dealing with physical difficulties and also I understand that if we um, are lucky to live long enough all of us will. Um, I wanted to share a couple of body practices that are not always shared in the instructions. Um, And again, this is because some of the traditional meditation instructions for me, having the body that I had, were not helpful. They were not skillful. And so to expand the range of mindfulness of the body, this first foundation possibilities is a commitment that I have as a teacher and it's interesting when I first started sharing these practices like a dozen years ago they weren't being taught at Spirit Rock and again I had this concern like is it okay that I'm doing this and now they have like whole courses down in the community hall on it I'm so happy about this everybody can learn about this so here's the background the background is um, many years ago I started weaving the, um, the sutta teachings of the Buddha and the, um, the basic insight meditation instructions with another modality. And that other modality is called somatic experiencing. And it was developed by a scientist, um, Peter Levine, who um, is a very reflective person, as a, as a meditator. And he went out into, um, you know, into to areas where there were still um, natural predator and prey. And he observed for long periods of time quietly with some really simple questions like, hmm, these animals are always about to kill or be killed. Why aren't they traumatized? in these deep reflective practices the questions are simple and more and more information is revealed you know, who am I and it drops in over and over again as we're here and more and more is revealed so that was you know his version of that question I feel like and out of that he developed this entire mindfulness modality of the nervous system um, you know a lot of times it's used for folks with um, incredible trauma experiences but the thing is is that most of us being a human being living a life have something where there's nervous system dysregulation and all of these practices work i mean just the screen use that we're on just the fact that most of the speeds that we're going at are not human speeds the nervous system gets a little out of whack it's hard to keep the mind and the body together in this world so that's the perspective that i'm bringing um this kind of creative weaving in. So I'll I'll share with you one of the teachings that made the whole thing light up for me, like what's the connection with the Dharma with this? And it was an interview that Spirit Rock did with Ajahn Suchita, who Oren mentioned the other night that that we've both practiced with. So um, one of the elders, the Western elders in the Thai Forest tradition. And Spirit Rock did an interview with him. And when I read the interview, I went, oh, "Aha!" It was one of my light bulb moments. Have you had a light bulb moment yet, this retreat? Okay, it's not too late. Seriously, it's not even too late after the retreat. If you don't kind of have a, a moment of clarity or an aha uh-huh during the retreat, sometimes it happens two days later. So, however this retreat goes, when you get to the end, like don't think the story's over. Sometimes people actually have their most important unfoldings after the retreat. And sometimes it happens during. So here's the teaching. So says, begin to sense how the energy of the body relates to the energy of the mind. When the energy of the body is more settled and steady, the effect on your mind stares you in the face. The mind is calmed and steadied and deepened. Then I began exploring meanings of the words like kaya-sankara, chitta-sankara, which are translated as bodily formation, mental formation. I reckoned the Buddha was referring to a process which is a distinct rhythmic flow. Simply speaking, the flow of energy through the nervous system. This is Kaya Sankara. It gives subtle inner form to the experience of the body. It's like, oh, you know, one of the translations of Dhamma is nature. As John was saying the first night, it's like, oh, Dhamma is nature, nature body is nature, there's these distinct rhythmic flows, here we are in the change of season, and in the foundations of mindfulness teaching from the Buddha, one of the refrains, the chorus, if you will, of that teaching is that we experience these things internally, externally, and both. And that one's not better. That it's an interweaving. It's a wholeness. Okay. So I thought we would um, do a couple of simple practices, just so that you're not just listening to content all night. And here's the first piece of good news: it absolutely does not need a different posture. Because it's actually something that if you feel like this is useful and you want to take it on as a practice ongoing, you want to be able to do it anytime, anywhere. But it's sure helpful to start in a quiet meditation hall with not a long to-do list ahead of you, right? All of these trainings, these are helpful conditions. So in this same sutta, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four frameworks that we can be mindful, which are body, feeling tone, mental states, and dhammas. And again, that's a whole nother teaching. That was just a reminder or headlines. Okay, But the very beginning of that sutta in the old language, in Pali, um, starts with this wonderful Pali word. I absolutely love it. I hear it in my practice all the time and it's Ida. Ida. That's the first word. Do you know what it means? It means here. The whole thing starts with the invitation here. And so like Peter, I started asking myself a really simple question which is, okay, that's a great invitation. How do I really get here? What is a range of possibilities of how I can support this mind body system to arrive? And so, this is one of many, many ways that we can arrive. Um, It's actually called orienting. And what it does is it supports the possibility of increasing over time our inner experience of may I be protected and safe. Not immediately. It's a, you know, it's a training. It always takes repetition. But it starts to grow it from a nervous system level, which is really different than telling ourselves, I'm at Spirit Rock, I'm safe. Or I'm at Spirit Rock, I should be safe. Now, we don't always feel safe. That's part of how it is. So we can also support from the inside this, um, this nurturing of increasing safe, understanding that it's not a safe world both are true so this is pretty easy the hardest part about it is um, leaving any education that you have at the door because uh, the nervous system, I think of it as an ancient creature, it, it really doesn't care how much intellectual knowledge we have it has its own wisdom Okay. so that means these practices are really easy and we say to ourselves I don't need to do that because I already know and then we miss the opportunity to know in a different way The body way. So all you need is a semi-functional pair of eyes. And a semi-functional neck. Okay? Um, And all we need to do. Is actually something that. We don't usually do in these retreats. But why not? Let's live a little. We're going to start looking around. (laughs) Okay? So we don't need to like make dramatic eye contact. With each other. But this is a, a really beautiful space. That was visioned and built with love. And generosity. So. Um, Take it in. The art, the ceilings, the quality of the lights, the floor. Oh, and um, be sure to turn around and land your eyes on the back exits. The nervous system really likes to know where the exits are just in case. And this is such a great space from a nervous system perspective because there are one, two, three, four exits. I love this space for that reason. <laughs> okay. So again, it's easy to go, well, I don't need to look at the exits because I know where they are. But again, the, the nervous system attunement, it needs to see. So then we can just um, land our eyes on um, something that's pleasant in here. So we're back to feeling tone, right? Is your favorite color or something that kind of just feels soothing. And just take a few breaths with that pleasant visual. Yeah, that's good, it's like for a moment, it's just like there was a there was a collective attention. You know? There's energy with that. It, it's why sometimes it's easier to meditate with a group, that, that we're not just generating all of our own momentum, we're riding on collective momentum. It's also why when the meditation hawk starts to like, squirm or get restless, it's really easy to catch it. <sighs> So we're completely unique and differentiated and we're completely influencing and supporting and connecting all in the silence. So every person has their own space to unfold. So that's one practice. Um, Another practice, uh, the other one we'll do, I've been kind of mentioning in the morning instructions with the whole piece about um, feeling the palms of the hands between breaths, how that settles the nervous system, or if there's a strong emotion, that you can do that at the end. Um, And I really deliberately don't talk nervous system theory in these talks. There's so much great information out there. Um, but what I'm interested in is inviting us into a direct experience of the nervous system body, which is so different than theoretically understanding it. You know, so just, just to be clear why I'm talking about the way I am. And so from a direct experience languaging, reactivity uh, mentally, emotionally, energetically tends to uh, move up in the system. You know, you look at your basic startle response, right? Loud noise in the hall, and you go, (gasps) okay, so if your eyes were open, you just saw that a startle response um, modeled through Heather, it's like, (sighs) it moves up. And then what happens as adults is we go, oh, I'm fine, there's nothing. But energetically, there's still something that's up. It didn't have a chance to settle and discharge. Then we walk around like that. Then we add them up. You get it? (laughs) Um, You know, anger. Just another example. It moves up, we get red in the face. Um, And even really strong positive emotions tend to to move up. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but so much of this practice is about balance. So if it's moving up, we want to make sure that there's also down (laughs) and ground. And so from nervous system technology, the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, I call them the four portals. Four portals for potential discharge of reactivity. It takes practice. These are practices I do hundreds of times a day that my system is so well trained that every time I notice stress or struggle or reactivity, there's just an immediate moment of feeling my hands and feet. Take a deeper breath, feel my hands and feet. Nobody knows that I'm doing it. I call it stealth dharma. I can do it anywhere. So while we're here, we're developing different kinds of um, tools and trainings and to know we've got the time and space to do that and then it can really have some momentum out into our lives. You know, So as we're making choices here about how we want to engage, we're very aware that you can engage all of the teachings and practices that we're offering or offering them because there's different needs in the community. So it's really trusting um, your own inner knowing about what you need and and what's most important to develop here. So we'll just take a moment um, to to do this resourcing. I, I use the teaching from the first foundation of mindfulness of the elements, earth, air, fire, water, and feeling the hands and the feet. And I'm also inspired by the story of Siddhartha right before his awakening, where he had yet another cycle of doubt. who do you think you are to be sitting under this Bodhi tree thinking you of all people is going to have you know an awakening that changes the planet? That kind of doubt And those of you that know this story, what did he do? What did he do? yeah, exactly, ground he put his hand on the earth and took refuge and acknowledged the witness of the earth of his sincerity and his commitment we can do that and now that I've said that you can do it any time you feel that doubt come that I'm not good enough again and you notice yourself starting to believe it again the earth is here Put your hand right down on it. Say, the earth is my witness. And I'm just not going to live in this dynamic, in this moment, of not good enough. I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to let the earth have my back. It's a possibility. So, um, you can do this eyes open or eyes closed. doesn't matter. You don't need a special posture. If your um, hands hurt, use your feet. If your feet hurt, use your hands. If they both hurt, um, you can try sits bones. You know, there's there's other areas, because again, actually the intentionality with the attention um, is very supportive overall, okay? But if possible, try to um, feel either your hands or your feet. You don't need to feel both, that's too complicated, okay? So it's just like, here's this field of sensations that we label hands or feet. And so I'm just gonna ask some inquiry questions with the elements and you can check. So earth element, are the sensations heavy or light? Fire element, are there sensations of hot, cool, cold, water element? Any sensations of flow? And, and sometimes it's the, it's the opposite. It's just more of a. Um, there's kind of a, a global feel of cohesion in the sensations. Then we got air element. Are there any sensations of tingling, vibrating, pulsing in the hands or the feet? No, acknowledging that sometimes actually they just feel numb, or like blocks of wood. And so then we just rest with that. So that's simple, right? It just took a couple minutes. When you get familiar with it, it can take a couple seconds. Um, Nervous system just discharge sensations to be on the lookout for. Can't control them, can't make them happen. But to be on the lookout for um, include uh, warmth, heat, um, flow, tingling, vibrating, pulsing. All of that indicates, oh, things are moving down and out. Things that might have been stuck on a nervous system level are unwinding and moving. And it really does take repetition. It's just like mindfulness of breathing, right? Like what if we were mindful of breathing one meditation, we go, all right, I got it, next. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) smiling at at those of us who've been doing this for decades, you know, (laughs) as if it's a lifelong relationship. All the aspects of these changing bodies, including breath, including nervous system. So, it's the body piece. I want to spend more time there. Then we've got the the heart. Um, the, and the importance of the journey of the heart. Um, and so, I'm aware that the instructions that we're giving in the afternoon are for the unfolding of the practices of loving kindness. And... Um, and so I'll let that unfold in the afternoons. But I, I just wanted to bring in um, another quality of um, awakening heart as a possibility. And, and I know that Carol mentioned that you know we've got these four abodes of the awakening heart. The um, friendliness, the loving kindness, compassion, um, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And so as I've been sitting with some of you in groups, I've been um, hearing and really respecting different ones of your journeys with, um, with the heart and um, getting more connected there over time. I mean, again, these are lifelong journeys. It's not as if we like, really get to check it off the to-do list. And there's seasons. Where the heart's more open, more closed in this circumstance or that circumstance. You know, it is, it's flowing. The heart, I feel like, is a seasonal creature. Um, and this whole process of starting to understand the way that we armor and guard and protect. Um, and, and the respect that that was probably needed at a time when we didn't have um. Like we didn't have perhaps the support that we have now or we didn't have the um, developmental experience or we didn't have other skills, you know. And so our hearts do what they have to do to survive. And then there's um, the journey that we're in now, right? So I feel like that journey of compassion for me, I can only speak for myself. Each one of us has our own journey. But for me, so much of that early process with compassion was starting to come to understanding of exactly how defended my heart was. Um, and then the next piece was um, coming into contact with how painful that was for me. You know, because the defense um, kind of numbs feeling. And so then we start to actually realize the pain of it. And I had to offer so much care and so much patience and courage and love in that part of the process. So it's like first recognizing that it was defended and hating it and just wishing it would go away already. You know? But also celebrating it. Because gosh, I mean, I don't know about any of you who've ever had a guarded heart, but you know, I had a lot of identity with that. I mean, it may not look like it now. Um <laughs> Especially since I told you my heart's on my sleeve tonight. And I acknowledge that to a hundred people. But in fact, historically for me, I was so tough. Um, I had to be. You know. And so it was like, oh, I needed to respect and celebrate what was so when it was so. And then understand that seasons were changing. And that actually it wasn't current. And I was trying to hold on and keep manifesting something that was no longer authentic. you following this? Okay. That was an awfully quiet, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you're supposed to be silent. It's a setup. But, but, you know, I'm sharing really personally. So if it's not relevant, I'd really rather move on. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> um, no. So it's like, okay, the respect, the acknowledgement, feeling the pain. And then... Um, coming into more wholeness. Um, And for me that took a tremendous amount of time because there was this fear that if I I started to kind of open the defenses that all of my care that was hidden behind it would flood out in a really dysfunctional and unhealthy way that we call codependence. So again, this is only my own story. But often there's a fear that, oh, if I open my heart, then dot, dot, dot. What's your fear? Um, and just to acknowledge really um, what I see codependence as is from a dharmic perspective is a, a misunderstanding of, of, dif- of differentiation. You know, so sometimes from a dharma perspective, I'm going to talk more about this in my next talk. It's like, oh, well, we're all connected. We're all one. I'm trying to open my heart and be open. And, and it's like, no, 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 no. There's a me and a you. We need healthy boundaries. There's a differentiation. So we got to work with like the patterning, the conditioning. And so truthfully, you know, I did that through a lot of good therapy and, and other work. You know, the dharma does not cure all of our ills all the time, unfortunately. But for me, whatever modality I'm engaged in is part of my dharma. You know, it's under the umbrella for me. That's just my experience. You see what your experience is. But I just wanted to share with you the wishes that I use. Um, and, you know, I'll put them on the bulletin board just in case there's a time where the authentic flavor in your practice that's needed is not so much friendliness, but it's care. You know, Compassion is, is the heart-mind that quivers in response to difficulty, whether it's personal, interpersonal, systemic, or the world. You know? um, and there's a tremendous strength, actually, in it encourage. Oh, you know what? I brought a quote about that. I know I said share my wishes, but hold on. Um, So this is um, from Brene Brown. She says, only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness, will we discover the infinite power of our light. Only when we're brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. So it's like darkness is fertile, as, as um, filled with potential for clear seeing, for full heartedness, for transformation and release. And then, oh, there's the light and its potential. So here are the wishes. Um, They're not the best wishes. They're just the wishes I developed. Feel free to develop your own. Because in the compassion practice, just like the metta, we use intentional wishes repeatedly to gather the power of the mind and heart in the direction of compassion. So what I've been saying to myself over and over again over these last 20, 25 years, whatever it is, is I care. I care about this pain, through the caring, may the pain be eased. I care, I care about this pain, through the caring, may the pain be eased. So I care can be brought in any time, any moment of duress, which is retrain the mind to have a first response of I care. I spent about five years doing that. So this stuff is not like necessarily fast. But to me it was worth it because my first responses before that were like four letter words and like fear and aversion and reactivity and, and I just knew there was another way. Um, you can use a pronoun with I care about this pain if it makes it more connective for you. care about my pain, I care about your pain. And through the caring, may the pain be eased. What it's pointing to is harnessing energy um, that can then be used to see, care, and respond. So it's like, okay, I'm going to fill the reservoir of empathy and caring so that then I can meet life on life's terms, internally, externally, both. That's through the caring. So it's not passive at all. Not at all. Share with you another quote that's been bringing me a lot of joy recently. It's from Oprah Winfrey. She said, You have to find what sparks a light in you so that you, in your own way, can illuminate the world. Love this quote for this time of year, too. You have to find what sparks a light in you so that you, in your own way, can illuminate the world. So I, I really find, perhaps you do too, that it really is internally, externally both. So we do the inner work, the interpersonal work, and then the systemic work that this world needs, you know, in different seasons. So if you're thinking, well, I'm just working on myself right now, we need that. If you're thinking, I'm really out there working within systems for justice and equity, we need that. We need all of it. Uh, we need those who, who care enough and have enough patience and commitment to, to raise families as well as possible. Knowing that it's going to be a mess, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I want to share with you my favorite quote about this piece of, of these heart qualities externally. Um, and, and one of the ways that it works It's from a a woman that I deeply admire and um, she's a leader in her own right. Um, Very highly educated inspiration for many. Um, But again, her husband is better known. So this is a quote from Michelle Obama. And it's about her husband. And, And basically, I take this quote as how she sees her husband practice with working with the systemic work of the heart. She says, and I love that even in the toughest moments, when we're all sweating it, when we're worried that the bill won't pass, and it seems like all is lost. Barack never lets himself get distracted by the chatter and the noise. Just like his grandmother, he just keeps getting up and moving forward with patience and wisdom and courage and grace. I've been practicing with this quote for years and it still really moves me. It's like this is not different than what we're doing here. We're doing this training so that we can go out in the world. And so it's like, oh, in the times that we're worried and it feels like things are going wrong, you know? And it seems like all is lost. Um, Several of you described cycles today where you were like, yesterday I was so happy and well-being and today, dot, 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 the sadness, the anger, the mess. And what I said to each person is, in the big scheme of the arcs of our practice, this is an indication that practice is progressing. Because we were able to rest and drink in that kind of fullness in the peak cycle, the system knew that there was the resiliency to be able to um, bear witness to difficulty. The system knows. And so we go like this. And we go like this in the inner world, in the outer world. And, you know, may we all access our inner grandmothers, our inner grandparents, our inner elder, no matter what our age, because eldership is not fully connected to age. May we access that. May we be nurtured by that refuge. The same way that we're nurtured by this land and by this center and by the support that's here. But that inner nurturing, that inner refuge. So I guess that goes on to a moment on the last piece, yeah? And you're doing great. We're almost done. Are you happy? (laughs) Now that's a setup. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help myself. So this is a a very famous teaching from the Buddha. Uh, It's really about the light. Uh, This mind, friends, is radiant, but it is obscured by visiting defilements, i.e. visiting reactivity patterns. Um, The ordinary person does not understand this as it really is, and so for them there is no development of mind. This mind, friends, is radiant and it is freed from visiting defilements, visiting reactivity. Uh, One who has accessed their inner nobility understands this as it really is and so for them there is development of mind. So there's, there's really an invitation into wholeness with that you know it doesn't say like oh the mind is just completely clean and clear the end happy ending i mean it's always worth looking out for where on the spiritual path that we're still our okayness is still dependent on the happy ending you know because it's it's pretty um assiduous at, at, at a certain point sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not Thought I would share with you a, a four-line poem from somebody who sat a retreat with me this fall that says that teaching from the Buddha in a different way. So her name is Renee, and she said it was okay that I shared this. Luminous full moon pearl, tended by the bubbling hive mind surrounded by an endless string of amber-pitched memories floating on the wings of awareness. It's all just floating through. There's visiting reactivity and yet There is this um, luminosity or this inner grandmother, grandparent, this inner knowing that is not actually affected by the visitations. It's completely available for anything that visits without present, without preference. So that's an incredible refuge because it means that we have space for this long-term transformation journey, that we don't have to get it all worked out in order to be okay. That there's actually something that was already okay, that's always okay, that, um, that there's the potential to rest into in moments. And sometimes I say it's small moments many times. You know, connecting with that which knows all this and holds all this without a war, without a struggle. So here's the closing quote, and it's by one of our great late masters of the Thai force tradition, Ajahn Mun. This is actually taken um, from his enlightenment poem, which is several pages long. And I don't think we'd have the bandwidth for it at this point, but just to know it's out there. And this is just a stanza. When the heart sees its own decayings, it's released from darkness. It loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It stops searching for things within and without Its attachments all fall away. It leaves its loves and hates, whatever weighs it down. It can end its desires. Its sorrows all vanish, together with the weighty cares that make it moan. It's as if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart. Just like feeling that potential right now. Just resting back a little more space. Oh, a shower of rain to refresh our hearts. quality of presence, you don't have to believe it, you don't have to understand it, it's right here. That came through us. Thank you for your practice.